Well, Pilate wonders if Jesus is a king, and Jesus says, well, as a matter of fact, you said so, and for this reason I have come. In our passage of Scripture this morning, two kingdoms clash. Well, in fact, three kingdoms are going to clash. One kingdom is arrayed for battle. It is ready to do absolutely everything it can to execute its enemy. Another kingdom is getting pulled into the alliance to make sure that this dangerous man can be killed, can be gotten rid of. And then the king of the third kingdom that we see this morning has been arrested. And now he stands on trial. He's been condemned by the leaders of the Jews. They've brought him now to stand trial before Pilate. And the conversation between Pilate and Jesus begins in this passage of Scripture today. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders of the day, are doing absolutely everything that they can to protect this kingdom that they oversee and that they believe they control. They're in charge, they say what gets done, and they see Jesus as their enemy. He is a threat to them. The Roman governor, Pilate, he has the kind of political power, military power that they desire. So now over the next chapter and a half, can they convince him to do what they want and get Jesus executed? And this Jesus stands on trial. Pilate wants to know if he is a king. And Jesus says, I am, but I oversee a kingdom that is different than what you normally think of as a kingdom. It's unlike other kingdoms that you know. So if that's the case, what is the kingdom of Jesus Christ like? What has he, as king, actually come to do? And will that kind of power save him from death on the cross? Our passage of Scripture this morning deals with some really big issues in this part of the conversation between Jesus and Pilate. Questions like, who rules what? Who's really in charge? Who gets to say what happens here? We even get questions like, what is truth? Does it even matter at a point like this? So in our passage of Scripture, we've got a couple of things that are going to help us make sense of what happens now at the end of John chapter 18. And the first is this. The kingdom of God is just different from the kingdoms of this world. It's part of what we're learning in this passage. John, the gospel writer, has not used the language of king and kingdom a lot, but it comes to the forefront in this passage, and it's going to be almost repetitive for us. So it's important for us to hear what this is all about. Jesus makes sure that Pilate knows that he is king, but king of a different kind of kingdom. So what is that like, and why is it important to us now? And then the second thought that's going to guide this for us, and I think help pull a lot of this together for us right now, is the question that Pilate asks. What is truth? We get in this passage of Scripture this famous, cynical, but ultimately incredibly important question, what is truth? Does the answer even matter? Is there even an answer to the question? Have we finally gotten past this whole matter of what truth is and what our duty to the truth is? 
So it's going to help us make sense of what Jesus has to say this morning. So let's read the entire passage today at the end of John chapter 18, beginning in verse 33. The Jewish leaders have brought Jesus to Pilate. The Jewish leaders wanted to remain ceremonially pure so they wouldn't cross the threshold in the Pilate's home into where he leads as governor. So they send Jesus into Pilate. And here's what happens in verse 33. So Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord, or did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might, might, might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, What is truth? After he had said this, he went back outside to the Jews and told them, I find no guilt in him. This is going to be an interesting reality with Pilate. And we're going to deal with his ambiguity more in the next passage of Scripture. But he actually tries to not get Jesus executed. I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at the Passover. So you, do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? They cried out again, not this man, but Barabbas. Now, Barabbas was a robber. Are you the king of the Jews? That's how this conversation gets started. Pilate starts this part of the passage, this part of the trial with the question, are you the one they say is a threat to me? I'm the governor, Caesar is the emperor, or you're the one who thinks you're king? So he begins with a question about, are you genuinely a threat to us? Is this really something that I have to deal with? A lot of scholars say buried inside of the language is a sense that, this, sense that this might even be a scoffing kind of question. He looks at Jesus, and he's been up all night, and he's been arrested. He's been tousled by the soldiers and the temple guards. He's been thrown into Pilate's household. He doesn't look like what you would think a normal king would look like. So Pilate may be saying, you? Are you the king of the Jews? And this moment is loaded with irony. This moment is loaded with biblical expectation. This moment is loaded with the sinfulness of the human heart. It is this powerful moment. You see, the Jewish people have longed for their Messiah for generations now. The one who will be their divine king. They've known for a very long time that this Savior is coming, the Anointed One is coming, the day of the Lord is coming, the Messiah will release them from their enemies. They've known it, and now that he has come, they don't want him. 
We read some of those passages last week. John actually opens up his gospel by saying, and Jesus came to his own and his own did not receive him. They would rather actually work with their oppressors, work with the Romans to get Jesus the Messiah executed. Now, this is a powerful moment if we're not aware of some of the political backdrop that leads us to this moment. The Jewish people believe that the Romans are oppressors. They sit as usurpers in the place of King David. They don't belong there. They need their king on the throne. One of Jesus' disciples is called Simon the Zealot. And in Jesus' day and age, there is a political faction. They're called the Zealots. And what they do is by violence, they try to overthrow the Roman Empire and put a Jewish leader on the throne. So even one of Jesus' disciples has come out of that political violence, and he's a follower of Jesus. The Jewish leaders don't want to have anything to do with Rome. They believe they are usurpers. But now that Jesus has come, they've decided we're going to work with Rome. They're going to go so far as to tell Rome, we have no king but Caesar. So there's powerful things happening in this passage of Scripture. As a result of the kind of threat that they think Jesus is, they're ready to make powerful compromises in order to get Jesus executed, to deny him as their king. And in that thought, I want to take a look at those last couple of verses. I want to put these two thoughts together. Pilate says, now we have this custom. It is probably a Roman custom built around placating the Jewish leaders, placating the zealots. We're going to, you know, at one of your high festival holy days, we're going to release a prisoner back to you. Um, Do you want Barabbas or do you want Jesus? And the crowds begin to chant, and you read this more in some of the other gospel accounts, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. Now, John, in his gospel, describes Barabbas as a robber. Other translations will take that same word, and they'll say, well, Barabbas is, a, is an insurrectionist. Other translations will actually call him a revolutionary. From the point of view of Rome, he's a terrorist. That's who they want In Luke and Mark, they actually just use the word murderer. He's a murderer, and they want him back out on the streets. Matthew calls him a notorious prisoner. Whatever it is that he has done, he has made trouble for the Jewish people. He's made trouble for Pilate and for Roman rule, but this is who they want instead of Jesus. Who do they think is the greater threat to their kingdom? Who do they think is a greater threat to the power that they think they have that they would rather have a murderer back out on the streets instead of Jesus? Friends, I think this is incredibly important insight into how the human heart works when we are locked in our sin against God and against Christ. Listen to this. When the human heart rejects Christ, it is ready to accept any manner of destructive evil and call it good. The longer the human heart drifts from Christ, the longer the human heart rejects the truth of Jesus Christ, 
the longer a society or culture cuts Jesus Christ out of its daily rhythm, the longer and deeper a culture goes in its rejection and hatred and spite of Jesus Christ, that culture, that human heart is ready to replace Jesus with any manner of destructive, obviously destructive, blatantly destructive evil and call it right and good. Does that make sense? When we reject Jesus Christ, it's not that we believe nothing, we will believe anything. That's an important truth about the human heart. So here they are. And this is a dramatic example of this. It's not just in their hearts they rejected Jesus as Savior. They've sent him to Pilate to get him executed. They've rejected Jesus. And they're given an opportunity. Well, would you rather have him or a murderer? We want the murderer. And don't think that we're any different. Don't think that our culture is any different than what we see played out in this passage of Scripture today. Our culture for a very long time has been cutting Jesus out of it, out of its daily rhythm, out of its normal patterns, and pushing him further and further into the shadows. And not just neglecting him, but saying that he and what he teaches and his his followers have actually become dangerous to our culture. And the longer a culture does that, the more likely it is to accept the most bizarre and twisted evils and call it good. And in our culture, it's sexual deviancy. That's going to make us happy. That's going to give us fulfillment. That's going to make us feel like who we really are authentically. In our culture, it's the worship of creation itself. We're going to do significant damage to human beings as we worship the creation instead of the creator. And on and on the lies go, and on and on the manipulation goes, and they are obviously, blatantly destructive evils. But they've accepted it because they'll accept anything after they have rejected Jesus Christ. We see this truth detailed for us early in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 1, I'm going to read from verse 18 and then verses 24 through 25. I encourage you to read this entire section in the book of Romans. But here's part of what the Apostle Paul tells us. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Jesus said, this is the reason I have come to bear witness to the truth. And Paul says, this thing is so important that when the human heart suppresses it, it finds itself locked in unrighteousness. Therefore, the text goes on to say, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. It's the book written to the Romans, but it's also the book written to the Americans. It's Americans chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. It's as if he wrote it last year. When we suppress truth, we're willing to do all kinds of damage to ourselves. It's a stunning thing about the sin that is inside of our hearts, and it's an amazing thing about 
What the enemy wants to do to steal, kill, and destroy. That's not metaphor. That's not metaphor. He wants to steal, kill, and destroy. So what's the solution? Christ is king. That's what's at play here. That's what's the debate here. Pilate wants to know if he is a king. So Pilate says, are you king of the Jews? And Jesus says, do you say this of your own accord or did others tell you this about me? So Jesus talks with Pilate. He presses the issue of what it means to be king. Who's king? How these kingdoms work. Jesus presses the conversation. And Pilate is clear. He's a pagan Roman governor. He didn't grow up in the Jewish universe. He didn't grow up hearing the Old Testament, going to synagogue, wondering when the Messiah would come. This is not in his background. He says, look, your own people brought you to me. And their complaint is you say you're king. What I believe is my emperor's king. That's who I answer to. So I need to figure out this kingship thing with you. So Jesus then says this, my kingdom is not of this world. Back in verse 36, so we catch all of it, what he says. Pilate says, now what is it you've done that brought you to this place? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would do the kinds of things that the servants of normal human kings do. They would have been fighting so that it would not be arrested and brought to you and executed. But they didn't do any of that because my kingdom is not from this world. Jesus says, I'm a king, but not in the way that you think, not in the way that you understand. Jesus says specifically, I did not have my disciples take up arms. I did not have them do everything that they could to, to oppose my arrest, to try to manipulate the political and the legal scene so that I might be saved from this kind of moment. That's not how we did any of this. He said earlier on when he was pressed about his teaching, look, I didn't teach anything in secret. You can go ask these people. Everything I taught and everything I did, it was all out in the open, and none of it was insurrection. None of it was, I'm going to physically take over the throne. The first person we're going to get is Herod. The second one is Pilate, and then we're going for Rome. Jesus never says that because his kingdom is not like that. It's not of this world. So we're starting to see something significant, friends, and it's... Not just that Jesus says his kingdom is not from this world. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, the kingdom that you belong to, the kingdom that guides your lifestyle, your priorities and your decisions, is not from this world. So notice this. The kingdoms of this world rely on earthly power, and they hold that power for a period of time. Jesus' kingdom does not rely on earthly power and will never be overthrown. It doesn't matter how powerful that earthly kingdom is, and Rome was the power. But what happened to Rome? It just sort of sunk into the sand and it disappeared. 
what's happened to every dynasty since, what's happened to every kingly and queenly family since, what has happened to every nation since. It's risen and it's fallen, and it's risen and it's fallen, but the power of Jesus Christ is not like that. He belongs to a kingdom that will never be overthrown. In the book of Hebrews, the image is this. You belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And part of what's so beautiful about that mention in the book of Hebrews is that there's, there are these moments inside of the Old Testament prophets that tell us when Jesus Christ comes and the nations of this world array themselves in battle against God to destroy him, God puts his foot on earth and all of the kingdoms of the earth shake until they are rubble. But you belong to a kingdom that cannot be shaken. What is the kingdom of God? What do we mean by this? Here's a way of thinking of it. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. It's where God rules and reigns. Right now, God rules perfectly in heaven. So Jesus teaches us to pray, may your will be done on earth just as it is in heaven. Because God rules perfectly in heaven. He also rules in the lives of his children, Christians. How many of you perfectly allow God to rule in your life? Let's see a show of hands, and then there's going to be a repentance service at the end of it, right? <laughs> he rules in the lives of Christians, of his church here and now, and he will eventually rule perfectly everywhere. That's the kingdom of Jesus Christ that is still coming. The kingdom of God is where God rules and reigns. We're not ruled by kings and queens anymore, so sometimes this language feels a little archaic to us, but it's not all that foreign. It actually is basically not all that difficult to understand. When we think of a king or a queen of France or of the British Empire, the power of that king goes as far as the boundaries of that nation go. So wherever that king or that queen can have their way, that is the size of their kingdom. That's the scope of their power. The kingdom of God is wherever God has his way. So if the kingdom of God is inside of you and me, how much inside of this human heart allows God to have his way? And to that extent, God is king of this life. What is the kingdom of God? Listen to how Paul puts it in Romans 14, 17. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Part of what the Apostle Paul is teaching in that passage is that the kingdom of God is not a matter of the rules and structures and legalisms of this world. It is a matter of the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of God's children. And I love that language. The kingdom of God in you and me is righteousness. This is our personal holiness. Peace, my goodness, God grant us peace and joy. My goodness, does joy sometimes feel like it belongs in a foreign land? But that's the kingdom of God. 
That's where it is. That's who gives it to us. Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 and 14. Paul says it like this. He, meaning God, has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The kingdom of God is not something that we achieve. It's not something we make happen. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, then my disciples would pick up swords and they would make it happen. But instead, it is a life given to us by God. He is the only one who can take us from darkness to light. He has transferred us, Paul says, from darkness into the kingdom of the Son that he loves. This is what the kingdom of God is. Where is the kingdom of God? Can we look at a map and see the boundaries like we would of the Roman Empire during the life of Christ and say, oh, well, there's where the kingdom of God is. I didn't know it, it spanned the Mediterranean, right? Can we do that? Or is it something vastly different? Luke chapter 17, verses 20 and 21. Here's part of how Christ describes it. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come because they're expecting an earthly kingdom. He answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that you can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is. Here comes the army to bring in the kingdom of God. Or, therefore, behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. This is where God reigns. In the lives, the hearts, the minds, the thoughts, the emotions, the priorities, the work those who belong to Jesus Christ. Friends, this room, this place, the body of Jesus Christ, the local church, this is where God reigns. This is an expression of the kingdom of God. So it begs the question, if you are ruling and reigning in your own life, is God really king? I've had a few of these kinds of conversations over the last couple of weeks, and it's just as clear. God isn't king in this life. They're king in this life. How can I become a part of the kingdom of God? Mark chapter 1. Mark chapter 1 describes the first sermon that Jesus Christ preached. When he hit the scene, this was his sermon. Mark 1, verses 14 and 15. Now, after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God, the good news of God, and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe in the gospel. There it is. There's the bottom line of every sermon every pastor should, every pre should ever preach. The kingdom of God is here, repent and believe in the gospel. There it is. Repent. Turn away from your sin and follow Jesus Christ. Stop trying to justify your own way of life. Stop trying to believe that none of this really matters. Your eternity is on the line. Repent and believe because this is the good news. And take heart, friends. Recognize that there is this loving and forgiving and risen Savior who will take all of your sin and all of your past and forgive you and make you a new creation. 
This is the kingdom of God. These are the kinds of things that this king does. Other kings and other queens and other presidents and other prime ministers and other premiers will just use you for their own purposes. This king takes you, forgives you, heals you, and makes you a child of God. That's what this king does. The kingdom of God is different. It is eternal. It is at work in the children of God. It changes individual lives from the inside out. And it is founded on the truth of Jesus Christ. Even in this conversation with Pilate, Jesus will not stop talking about what is true and why the truth is so important. Jesus tells this poor Roman governor, for this purpose I was born, to bear witness to the truth, and everyone who is of the truth listens to me. Jesus has been clear about this throughout the gospel. And John, the gospel writer, has picked up on this. And it becomes important to him when he writes his letters to the church that he oversaw, probably in the city of Ephesus. But it comes through this gospel. It gets into the vocabulary, the heart and the mind of John, the disciple. And it makes its way into our lives. In John chapter 8 in the gospel, verses 30 and 31 Jesus said, listen, if you listen to my word, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you pay attention to my word, if you and I obey Jesus Christ in this world here and now, we are truly his disciples. We're going to know his truth and we will be free. Later on, on the night before his arrest, John chapter 14, verse 6, John just very simply tells the disciples, listen, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody, nobody is going to have life with the Father here or in eternity except by me. I am the way, the truth, and the life. John the disciple becomes important to him. So it becomes this almost repetitive language in his epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. Listen to his greeting. Now, if you read the epistles, you know, it's late at night, you're reading through your Bible, you read the epistle, you skim over the first two or three verses because it's the same thing. I, Paul, greet you in the name of Jesus Christ. Okay, let's get to the real stuff. 2nd John chapter 1, the first three verses, his greeting the elder to the elect lady and her children, maybe referring to the church, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also, who, all, all, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever, grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ the Father's Son in truth and love. This is important to him. This is important to the church. This is important to us. Truth is not a matter of how we want the world to be. 
Truth is a function of what reality is. It's a function of how God created things. So when Jesus says he is the truth, he doesn't say I am the religious truth or I am the moral truth. He is truth. The way the universe spins, orbital mechanics and physics are based in, founded in, and sustained by the hand of Jesus Christ. What is true morally comes to us from Jesus Christ. What is true spiritually and religiously and relationally comes to us by Jesus Christ. If we follow any other teacher about the way society should be arranged, if we follow any other teacher that tells us this other way of ordering our lives, this other morality is true and it contradicts Jesus Christ, we immediately know not only is it false, it's dangerous. I'm riled up this morning, people. <laughs> If somebody convinces you to believe something false, if somebody convinces you to live in a way that is false, you are being manipulated by that person. The truth will set you free. It'll free you from that sin. It'll free you from that brokenness. It'll free you from that darkness. It'll free you from that guilt. It'll free you from that shame and anxiety. And there will be righteousness and peace and joy. Pilate isn't convinced. What is truth? The more I go through this passage of Scripture, the more I read others who deal with this passage of Scripture, I'm just convinced more and more that this is a cynical dismissal. This isn't an honest question. A pilot's going to waffle back and forth. He's going to actually argue the case about Jesus and whether or not he should die, and that's coming up later on. But at this point, Jesus says, I've come to talk about the truth. And Pilate says, what, what is truth? And he turns around and he walks away. Pilate believes he's seen enough of the way that the world works to think that, well, that doesn't really even matter anyway. What is, what is truth? You think you know that? Someone else has a different answer to that question. It doesn't really matter anyway. It is power that matters. It's networking that matters. It's financial power that matters. That's what matters. The truth doesn't matter. But friends, in the end, being soft on truth is a dangerous place to be. Being soft on the truth is a dangerous place to be. If you are soft on the notion of truth, if you're not even sure it exists, if you're not even sure that anybody really knows what truth is, well, I have a different truth, they have a different truth, what is truth? If you're soft on it, what it's going to do is several things. It's going to make you soft on Jesus Christ. It's going to make you soft on God. It's going to make you soft on religion in general. It doesn't really matter what anyone believes. If they're a good person, then everything is fine. If you're soft on truth, you're going to be soft on Jesus Christ, which is why inside of the church, when pastors and denominations and organizations begin to grow a little bit fuzzy on the lines of what's true and false, we're walking down a very dangerous path. Because eventually, sometimes very quickly, 
you're going to become soft on, well, Jesus isn't really the way, the truth, and the life. If we're soft on truth, it's going to make you susceptible to the latest moral and political fads that come along, especially if they have any kind of cultural power behind them. You will become susceptible to peer pressure. If you're not grounded in the truth of Jesus Christ, when the winds blow, your sail's going to be up and you're going to blow right along with it. You have to be grounded in the truth. If we're soft on truth, it's going to make you vulnerable to hucksters and power mongers and fear mongers who want to use you to get their way. And if you continue to believe what is false, repeat what is false, live as if these false things are true, you have given them your soul and they know it and they will use it and they will throw you away. So the truth will make you free. And if you're soft on the truth, you're going to become a slave to your own sin. Eventually, you're going to decide on one level or another, I'm the one who decides what's right and wrong. Nobody tells me otherwise. That just means you're a slave to your own sin. That's all that means. You haven't suddenly become authentic. You haven't suddenly become real to your true self. You've just become a slave to sin. That's it. And so much of our world requires falsehood to run right now. And so when those falsehoods get pumped over and over and over, you just refuse to believe it. You refuse to repeat it. You refuse to live it because you and I belong to the truth that is in Jesus Christ. So you and I, friends, followers of Jesus, we see things differently than Pilate does. We don't have that reaction to the matter of truth. The idea of truth may not be high in the popularity polls right now, but we love it. We cling to it, and we express it to the world around us. There's this powerful and haunting passage of Scripture in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is talking about what's going to happen just before the kingdom of Christ comes. He's dealing with those matters that happen near the end when the day of the Lord comes. And he's speaking of what he calls the man of lawlessness, this final power that takes over the world and rebels against Jesus Christ. And he says a lot of people are going to fall right in line with this demonic falsehood. And here's part of how the Apostle Paul describes it. In 2 Thessalonians 2, verses 9 and 10, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. You're going to have to be grounded in the truth. And with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. That is powerful language. They refused to love the truth. Followers of Jesus Christ are those who love truth because we love Jesus, because we hear what he has said to us, because it's making its way deeper and deeper into who we are as followers of Jesus Christ. The kingdoms of this world, a three-step process, 
Here's how the kingdoms of this world work. Here's the life cycle of the kingdoms of this world. Power, force, failure. They rely on their own power to get their way. They will do whatever they can by force to get their way. The Jews are doing everything they can by force to get Jesus executed, but in the end, they fail. They all die. Jesus is alive. <laughs> Could it be any clearer than that? The cycle of the kingdom of God We're founded on the truth of Jesus Christ. Jesus requires of us now faithful endurance because there's coming a day when there is inevitable and eternal victory in Jesus Christ. Truth, faithful endurance, and victory. So Jesus tells Pilate, knowing that Pilate is not one of these men, everyone who is of the truth listens to me, hears my voice and listens to me. Christ does not come with manipulation, with force, with fear. He comes with the good news of salvation. This is the gospel of God. This is what the kingdom of God is like. And Christians, you and I, friends, we follow Jesus Christ through the cross, into the tomb, and out the other side. His death and his resurrection are our victory over the ultimate power that the world wields over us. Jesus is alive, and we will be with him forever. Christianity is not about cynicism, manipulation, anger. Our message is Christ's good news. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The truth of Jesus Christ is like the only light in a dark room. It is the rising of the sun after the long, dark night. It is the only spring of life in a dead and dry desert. And the human heart is in darkness and in death without Christ. And it wants that darkness until the Holy Spirit draws us to our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We are those who hear the voice of Christ, who not only believe in this truth, but love it. It becomes how we live, and it becomes our witness to a world that is lost in darkness and in death. Let's pray. Uh -huh.